The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Hello, and welcome to episode 24 of The Wizard Files the special interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine. Joining us this time around is a man who had his finger on the pulse of comic book prices that will uncover the mystery of why your complete run of Stormwatch ain't worth jack. Please welcome to the show former Wizard Price Guide Manager, Lars Pearson. How you doing? Adam, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, we're very excited to talk to you today, and uh, we know you have a lot of stories of the old days, but we want to go even farther back, the old, old days. We want to know, how did comic books enter your life? You know, I've listened to a couple of the interviews you've given, and I think my origin is a bit like Brian Cunningham's, except with more satanic panic and trauma. I grew up in Story City, Iowa, which is a small town of about 3,000 people. Uh, I grew up on a horse farm. And X-Men was my first great love. I got into the X-Men series. My first issue was John Byrne's last. My first issue was 143, which is the one where Kitty's alone at the mansion on Christmas and a demon comes in to kill her. Happy holidays. And so I was, I was about nine, I think. And I started to get into it. But the thing is, with Story City, there was only two magazine racks. And there was one at the grocery store and one at the pharmacy. And so every Tuesday when the new comics came out, you know, if you were nine or ten, you had to get on your little bike. You had to pedal like mad. You had to get one of those new issues because if you didn't get an issue, you weren't going to see it for ages and ages and ages. For me, there was no mail order. There was no comic book store. There was no nothing. I missed issue 150, which was the big climactic fight with Magneto. And I didn't find a copy for a year and a half. You know, it was just impossible. Actually, back in those days, I didn't see... I remember not seeing the end of Lady Hawk and uh, couldn't find a copy of that for four years. So, you know, the situation pretty pretty desperate sometimes. Well, let, let me ask this. Did you feel like you had a lot of competition around you? Were there other kids to talk about comics with? I mean, if you were a comic book geek, you tended to keep it to yourself because comic book fans were regarded as pretty lowly. But at the same time, there were a couple of titles that were very prized, like X-Men in particular. X Claremont X-Men was roasting so hot. All the you know fifth, sixth grade boys wanted a copy, even if they wouldn't openly admit to it. You would occasionally spy them having one at school or something like that. But it wasn't something that was, it wasn't particularly cool, but they all wanted it. So yeah, there, was, there actually was competition. You had to be, and again, remember, only two copies in a town of 3,000 people. So the competition became pretty fierce. But then things got weird because I hate to get too personal here, but it's just the way of things. For about a year, my parents tolerated the comics. They, they used them to placate me and they were supported. But then my parents went through a really ugly divorce. And two things happened. My father had never been that keen on them because he was Great Depression generation. And for him, you didn't spend money on entertainment. You would occasionally go to a movie, but the idea that you would spend money on comics was fairly ridiculous. My mother thought they were a portal to Satan. Um, I mean, like you do. <laughs> 
And their divorce got so ugly, I started having night terrors. I still have night terror syndrome, which is basically just that you have these excruciatingly intense nightmares and they, they just really screw you up. I actually did sleepwalk through a window. Wow. I mean, I mean, I mean literally asleep and just went right through it. But not like Kitty Pride. Not like Kitty Pride. That would have been a very handy talent to have. But anyway, amidst all of this, I mean, you know, it was the usual thing. This is the way with satanic panics and whatnot. Did my parents think the nightmares were coming from their behavior as part of this divorce? No, they chose to blame the comic books that you would buy off the grocery store racks in the 1980s, which for the most part were exceedingly tame. And in fact, during that, Gen Xers will remember this. My mother actually gave me a, it was a little purple booklet called A Christian Response to Dungeons and Dragons. And the cover has a dragon. And there's these two kids that I assume are brother and sister. The dragon is grabbing the little girl and the boy is still running for it. The message here being, I think, if a dragon grabs your sister, keep running. (laughs) Remember, you don't need to outrun the dragon. You just need to outrun your sister. So, yeah, it didn't go well. So I had to start hiding the comics everywhere. I start hiding them in my gym locker at school, in the photo lab at school, um, parts of the horse farm that I thought my father wouldn't locate them, the floorboards of my grandmother's garage. Uh, I also threw in one Playboy because you have to have standards. Um, <laughs> but mostly I was hiding, you know, Uncanny X-Men, New Teen Titans, Legion of Superheroes all over town. It was it was just crazy. To jump ahead a bit, when I was hired at Wizard, I just moved across country to to, you know, to, to be in New York for a, for a job for a magazine company. And I kind of thought, oh, I should probably send my parents something that I'm working on. By that point, my father had come around to it. So I sent him some wizards and it was fine. My mother, I thought, well, I can't send her wizard because that's Satan. I can't, I certainly can't send her inquest because that's double Satan. So I sent her a copy of Toy Fair. <laughs> I think it was Toy Fair number one. It had in it a Fumetti piece where they took a hard plastic Spider-Man, an Amigo Spider-Man, and were having a stress test competition where they would, like, torch them, hit them with a baseball bat, have a dog chew on them, cook them in gravy, that sort of thing. Yeah. And unfortunately, my mother did not see the humorous side of it and came completely unglued, sent me a, a scathing letter which accused my bosses in New York of exhibiting Hitler-like behavior. And I didn't have the heart to tell her that they were Jewish. <laughs> it's an odd thing to accuse Jewish people of exhibiting Hitler-like behavior, but, but she got there. Just so people know, like actual members of the staff once held a Seder with the, yes. with the staff members. I mean, that's, yes. that's how Jewish we're talking about here. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, quite, quite Jewish. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, no. So that was a lot of my upbringing was just hiding comics. And it's shocking to me today when those same comics started to like come on Comixology and Kindle and stuff. And I was like, oh, my God, anyone with like two bucks can now buy and store these comics that I just I just labored to protect. But during the divorce, they were keeping me sane. I mean, frankly, it was it was the comic books were keeping me sane. Now I've gone and told like George Perez. I'm like. Your work kept me sane during a very unpleasant period. So, yeah, some of these, some of these creators, just they were 
It meant a lot. Oh, by the way, I had a conversation with Marv Wolfman a few years back. What's funny is that his upbringing was much similar to mine, except it involved Superman comics of like the 1950s or something. Apparently, wow. from, yeah, some parallels between him and me, except it was like, again, Superman comics of the 1950s. So. You know, that's the thing with satanic panics is that we just keep moving on to the next one. Yeah. Now, given your uh, eventual job at Wizard during this time that you're hiding them away, you know, they're treasures to you. Were you at all in any way concerned with resale value? None whatsoever. I think I would like to think that made me a good price guide manager was because I know the numbers. I know the market. But I actually don't care about the brazen buying and selling. Every single comic I own is because I love it and enjoy it. I mean, I know the value of them, but I don't own comics for resale even today. So it was just that I had a journalism background. I was interested in the data acquisition and analysis. But in terms of like, ringing out every last cent oh god no no that that would not have factored into it to me curiously I've, I've never been a completist and i'm still not a completist like i love x-men but there's big chunks of x-men i don't have because i didn't have the money or the hiding places to store every comic i wanted and so i just had to be picky and if i didn't like a series i had to drop it and and collect something else so yeah no i've i've I'm not saying I've never bought and sold a comic for money, but I've never been a, a speculator particularly. Okay. So let's get into that then, because your first appearance in the masthead was Wizard issue number 70 that had a June 1997 cover date. So what what events then led you to working in the Wizard magazine offices? I had a background in journalism. I got an English degree at Co College. I ran the student newspaper. Straight out of school, I worked for a couple of Iowa newspapers, daily ones. Straight out of school, I was actually running a newsroom of 23 people. There was 23 people, 23 people who reported to me, not in any one evening, but it was just nuts. People ask me now, how can I follow that career? It's like, well, you really can't. The thing is about journalism is the hours are terrible and the pay is terrible, but you learn to work fast. I was working on a daily newspaper with hourly deadlines. And I remember one time we borrowed a reporter from a sister magazine that was weekly. And I kept sending his article in for rewrites. And he comes running in in a panic and he goes, I'm used to having three days to work on this. And I said, well, you've got 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, get cracking. The thing about journalism is also that weirdly there's long stretches of boredom that you're covering airport meetings and school board meetings and things like that and i'm not proud of this but journalists will tell you they kind of wish for a good murder not that you wish for a fellow human being to be killed but you just wish for the excitement of it because if there's a murder you have to dash about and get the right quotes and get the interviews, talk to the cops, who are the suspects, all that good stuff. It's exciting. There was one spot of excitement, well, a few spots, on uh, one of the newspapers I worked for, and that is that the town I was working on the newspaper had an annual air show. It was just kind of a family event in summer, and they would have planes out, and, you know, it was a big thing, fun for the family and so on. And every year... Some people at this event would skydive naked. <laughs> it 
Now, by the way, which I think would cause terrible chafing. Yes. I, I, that doesn't, to me, sound fun, but they would do it. But they always targeted themselves to land away from the grandstand, and this worked pretty well. But the year I was there, nine people jumped naked, six of them hit their target, three of them didn't, and they came down right in front of the grandstand. <laughs> You know, there's supposed to be grandmothers and children and dogs and all this stuff. And it was a very slow news cycle back in the days when you could have a slow news cycle. And it hit the national wires that, you know, people jumped naked out of an airplane in Iowa. Um, Now, coincidentally, at that time in the town, there had been a series of incidents because there had been a number of juice bars installed in the area yeah juice bar for those of you listening who don't know a juice bar is it's a strip club you can have full nudity but no alcohol and the town had never had to deal with this and so the town zoning laws never bothered to say you can't install a strip club near a church or a school or whatever and so these started cropping up and the good people of the town started responding with you know good grace and decorum um, actually, I'm joking. They resorted to arson and they started burning them down. Wow. Yeah. And, and other places while they were at it. I got to because you're, if you're a journalist in that town, you become friends with the cops because you'll get scoops that way. And I was working the desk and a friend of mine on the police force called and he said, by the way, one of the town brothels has burned down. Um, the fire department says it will be safe to go in in 20 minutes. And I said, I'll be there in 15. <laughs> And went and surveyed the burnt-out husk. And I will tell you, Lars, just real quick, this still happens today in a town where my mother-in-law was a school teacher for 40 years at a little country school. Across the street, an old restaurant got turned into a naked restaurant where all the female servers were naked, except they didn't advertise it that way. It was just a new restaurant is open. (laughs) And so older couples would walk in to get a burger on a Friday night, and the husbands would walk out and be like, dear, uh, I don't think we can order here. The madness, it only lasted six months. <laughs> but they didn't burn it down. Yeah, that one did not burn down. They did not burn down. I'd like to think my wife and I would have seen the funny side of that. <laughs> but anyway, this happened about the same time. And so when the naked skydivers came down, I'm getting calls for clarification from huge news services. I mean, calls from the Associated Press. I'm getting calls from the BBC. And I got a call from a Japanese news service. And they say to me, yes, could you give us clarification on these naked skydivers who were protesting the lack of juice bars in your neighborhood? <laughs> and I had to tell them, okay, wait, you, you, you've cross-pollinated two different stories here, but let's, let, I will unravel it for you. It'll be fine. But this is sort of the atypical excitement that happens. I mean, we had it. I covered an E. coli outbreak. I interviewed a guy who was writing a musical on the Spirit Lake Massacre. Um, Some interesting things happened, but for the most part, it's just crushing tedium. And you're working 2.30 in the afternoon to 12.30 at night. It will kill your social life. Kill it. So I just thought, is there anywhere that I can use my skills for things I love and have a day job as well? And lo and behold, there was Wizard Magazine. And I just sent in a letter of inquiry, some clips and so on. I just started saying, can I freelance for you? And they were like, sure. My first article was actually just a very small piece on Devil's Dew. I know you haven't gotten in your reviews up to Devil's Dew yet, but... 
And then I did another one that I don't remember. And then they called and said, we're doing a JLA special. Can you do four articles? And I was like, sure. I did the Aquaman piece. That all went well. And then they called my birthday and they said, we are creating the position of price guide manager. And I was like, okay. And they were like, are you interested? And I was like, yes, absolutely, positively. It took three months for them to settle on it because it happened over the holidays and everything slows up over the holidays. And then they hired me. The reason being that, and I can explain here how the price guide system worked, but the prices were generated at a third party in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And what it came down to was they wanted someone in the building that when something went wrong or whatever, that they could go talk to, that, that could coordinate things from the wizard headquarters So let me ask you about this, because prior to your arrival, Wizard made a big deal that they had stolen John Warren away from Overstreet and that he was now the senior price guide editor. And also Bob Marshall was there. He was also involved in all the price guide stuff. So what was your involvement there? How were the responsibilities divvied up? How exactly did that work? So, yes, John Warren ran this office in Chattanooga. John had bought Overstreet. That was his big claim to price guide fame. And then he branched off. And John and Wade Sane, who was both John's assistant and his brother-in-law, but Wade was a heck of a guy. I really enjoyed working with Wade. Their office would tabulate, assess, and process the prices. Bob was my assistant, and then we would, we would oversee the operation from New York. And now you're going to ask, how do, how were the prices tabulated? Well, three ways. We sent out retailer surveys. As I recall, there were two levels of retailer surveys. The one was people that they, we would print out the entire price guide and send it to them. And we had a point person. Like, I remember there was a point person at Graham Crackers who, you know, Jamie Graham just delegated the responsibility of, okay, you're going to help Wizard with the price guide. And we sent out a lot of these, and they would they would fill out, they would go through the entire price guide, and they wow. would give us their assessment of what things were going for. We had quite a few of those, and then we had other ones that were smaller, you know, books of interest that we wanted more information on. It was a bit of a less commitment. So we were doing as huge a harvesting of retailer information as possible. Obviously, we wanted big sample sizes. You know, the bigger the sample size, the more accurate the information. I, I do have to laugh a little bit when, like, Bleeding Cool puts out their best seller list and they've only asked like five retailers what is selling. I don't think that's a very big sample size. So these retailers, would they would do a lot of work and they would send it to John's office where it would all be tabulated. And the thing is, they weren't getting paid, um, these retailers. We would bribe them with Wizard product. Every time an action figure or a comic came out, I would be given like 30 to 50 of them that I could use as bribery. But it was still it was still a fair amount of work for here's a Kitty Pride action figure. And they were listed in Wizard as being contributors for what, you know, for what that helped them. So we would harvest as much retailer data as possible. Second, we would glean as much information from online sales as possible. Thirdly, Wizard would send me to about six to ten conventions a year. San Diego, Dragon Con, MegaCon, I mean, just a whole bunch of the big ones. And I would run around like a lunatic in the dealer's room, just making connections, talking to retailers, and scribbling down prices as madly as possible. So we had a lot of data to work from. The challenge became, 
trying to assess a single price from all that. Because what something is selling for at a convention might be a different dynamic to what it's selling for in a shop versus what it's selling for on eBay. But you could see patterns. You could see if a book was moving up in value. You could see if a book was moving down in value. Is this the most rigidly scientific thing imaginable? No, but we, like I say, we were working for a fair amount of data. You can see the trends. You'd have some flexibility. You know a book's moving up, and maybe you have to decide, well, do we move it up to $20 or $21 or $22? Because the data will kind of support any of those things. But the important thing is it's in the 20 to 22 range. It's not in the 10 range. I should add here that one of the challenges became, again, coming from journalism, I was interested in the process being as neutral as possible. The difficulty became that because Wizard was so central to everything, the market would follow us as much as we followed the market. Right. I'm not saying I'm happy about this. It's just the way that you know, at the time I was there, Wizard's circulation was about 225,000 at least. And, you know, so what would happen is if we would red bar something, we would say, oh, you know, this is moving up in price because the data showed it's moving up. In price. People would take notice of that and then they go, oh, my gosh, it's moving up in price. I should buy it. And it would spark a minor buying spree and it would go up faster. But if we and I, this is a funny term to say, if we blue barred something, um, <laughs> it would, they're like, oh my gosh, it's going down in value. I should sell. And it would spark a minor sell-off. I'm not saying we were the end-all be-all. I'm just saying that, you know, there was a cause and effect there where you were banging your head a little bit because, you know, market manipulation was not in any regards our intent. It was just happening because we had so large a bullhorn. Right. Yeah. It should be mentioned for those who don't, you know, recall specifically what was going on. I mean, we mentioned John Warren and the Overstreet price guide was annual. And so that yes. was people would get their prices annually and assess the value of their collections. But what Wizard changed, I mean, they weren't the first, but they certainly were the one that had the biggest impact, which was a monthly price guide that was being updated this way. And I think, you know, it's also I, I wanted to ask you this because in that vein you know the two years preceding your arrival they had actually released two annual price guides that john yes. warren oversaw that they were really competing with the overstreet price guide and did they ever bring that up again once you were there saying should we do another one of those or did it not prove to be what the readers needed or wanted I actually did raise the question, should we... Because, yeah, no, when I got there, the big boom and bust of the 90s had come and gone. Things had calmed down a lot. They had done two annuals, as you say. I did raise the point in meetings of, should we do more annuals? Is there a purpose to that? And there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for it. I could never quite figure out why, but... I think everyone was just content to just stick with the monthly guy. Because as you say, what happened, Overstreet had a great reputation. They were very venerable. They were very well respected, but they were yearly. So I guess I think the editors were just inclined to play to their strengths. I should mention with regards the way we would affect the market. At the time, when I got there, again, the boom had come and gone, but certain things were just considered sacrosanct. So when I got there, the price of Spawn number one, I think, was $17. And, you know, looking at the market data, nobody was paying 17 actual American dollars <laughs> for a copy of Spawn number one. 
And uh, I, I worked quite a lot with Jim McLaughlin, actually. Jim edited my Market Watch columns. Jim was kind of market savvy. And I remember talking with him, and we asked the question, well, wait a minute, how many copies of Spawn Number 1 were printed? And the answer is over 2 million. And we were like, okay, so you could give a copy of Spawn Number 1 to every man, woman, and child in San Diego, and you still have copies left over. So we're like, nobody is actually paying $17 for spawn number one. And so I said, well, look, let's just drop it from 17 to 15 and see what happens. And oh, my God. I mean, I don't wish to exaggerate here, but it triggered a minor freak out. Because at that point, the thought of spawn number one going down at all ever was just completely unthinkable. It had it had become like Amazon stock. You just think. It'll never really go down. And in fact, I got two suicide notes. (laughs) I got two notes from people who were like, oh, my God, this is crazy. I can't believe this. I'm going to kill myself. And weirdly, this was not the first time in my life I had dealt with someone threatening suicide. And so I messaged them back and I said, listen, if you are joking Knock it the hell off. If you are not joking, please tell me immediately so I can get you to the suicide hotline. And they were joking. Uh. I'm like, okay, okay. Don't joke about such things. You know, you shouldn't kill yourself anyway, but certainly not over spawn number one. And I, I will tell you, Lars, as you were telling the story, I grabbed the issues, and you were right, you know, so when you came in, you know, it's at $18. Okay. Five issues later, you have it listed at Fifteen dollars, and okay, then five okay. issues after that, it's back up to eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I don't remember exactly the way we marked it back up. We're, okay, we did not mark it back up because people were threatening suicide. Okay, that's not the way to get results. Okay, yeah. You know, yeah, I don't know. Maybe our marking it down triggered a, a buying spree. I, I don't know. But yeah, okay. It was okay. So it was. Thank you for correcting me. It was eighteen dollars rather than seventeen dollars. It was the guide to comics, but it was also very well respected as a price guide. So did management? Did you know the higher ups at editorial? Was it a very big focus for them? Would they say like, hey, you know, this is what our readers rely on? Or did was there not like a heavy amount of pressure on you guys to make sure it was always as accurate as possible? that was just your intention anyway yeah well for yeah first of all our intention was to be accurate we took that quite seriously management was if we're talking like garib fred pierce some of the other people in charge pat mccallum were very supportive because reader surveys persistently said the price guide was the second most popular section of the magazine would you like to guess what was number one I gotta say magic words. Magic words by Jim LaClaughlin. That's absolutely right. <laughs> so everything in between, uh, we could do without. Front and back of the magazine. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, sec- second most popular, you have some leverage there. And this is an absolutely true story. I'd been, I think I'd only been on the job. Like, I can't remember if this was during my interview or like the first week of my starting. But like really early on, I'm in Garib's office and he looks me in the eye and he tells me, you know, I'm, I'm hiring you to be in charge of the price guide department, and your job is to protect the price guide department from anybody who would try to undercut it. And he said, including me. Ooh. And I found that to be a really freeing thing to say. 
it's not often your boss says, you know, if I do something ill-advised, you need to tell me. And so I, I knew I didn't presume I'd win every battle, but I knew that my voice would be listened to. And that was that was incredibly empowering. So I'm very grateful to him to do that. So wizard management took it quite seriously. A lot of the wizard editors took it quite seriously because that's what the readers wanted. Now, there were other people at the company as in life, there's a certain type of fan who finds the idea of buying and selling comics for money just perverse. I, I, I guess the idea is that you're only allowed to buy comics or sell them for, you know, the love of the art, which always strikes me as funny because every commodity on earth is assigned a value. Every commodity on earth is based on supply and demand. Why are comic books any different from anything else on the planet. There's no real good explanation for that. But I do remember the first week I was there, and by the way, forgive me if I don't name names because I think the statute of limitations is up and I don't like embarrassing people decades after the fact. But the first week I was there, I started on a Monday, it's a Thursday, and I'm talking to a member, an unnamed member of Inquest staff. And by the way, I liked the Inquest staff quite a lot. We got along pretty well. But one of them, my fourth day on the job, told me he hated my department, he hated the price guide, and he wished the price guide would just go away. Remember, I have just moved 2,000 miles from Iowa. <laughs> well, I say 2,000, whatever it is. You know, left everyone I know for this job, and fourth day on the job, someone's looking at me and telling me, I really wish your department would just curl up and die. Because in his mind... With trading cards, he said, well, I think you should just trade according to the rarity and trade a common for an uncommon and trade a rare for a rare and an you know, ultra rare for an ultra rare. And I was like, well, let me get this straight. I said to him, if you had in, let's say you had a rare and let's say that rare was worth $80 and someone else had a rare worth $10, you would trade your $80 card for a $10 card? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, if you take a step back and think about it, that's kind of stupid, isn't it? <laughs> I know that sounds harsh, but I mean, you did sometimes have to have lizard skin to work in New York. Um, you know, especially when someone's telling you, I wish your department would just blow away like dust. And I think that's what Garib was in a way speaking to, was there were people who didn't like the concept of comics being bought and sold for that reason and weren't necessarily keen on the price guide. Actually, just, just to clarify that, so you, you were covering all price guides across the board. Correct. Including the infamous Bean Power. <laughs> yeah, no, Bob and I were the entire price guide department at Wizard, and we never really got a break because what would happen is, you know, the wizard editors, you know, you'd, you'd work like crazy, but then you'd send the issue to press. And then you'd have like a week where things would be calmer, you know, before they'd start up again because they were working once a month. But we were working almost weekly because we had the wizard price guide, we had the toy fair price guide, we had the inquest price guide, and occasionally we had the specials price guide. So we were working flat out and we're much more unhinged than some of the others who could catch their breath. Do you have any recollection at all of who your source was on the price of Beanie Babies? Um, I, I, again, I think we just had to have a discussion with, you know, John and Wade. And we just had to find a way to, we were like, okay, what retailers know about this? What What's the biggest net we can cast? What's you know, the best information harvesting we can get. And you just you just go out and you do it. I know you've heard tall, wild and true tales about bean power. 
The thing about bean power, I don't know if it's been explained, at the time, beanie babies were so insanely popular. I mean, the, the wizard management was just like, we're going to put out this magazine until we're told to stop. <laughs> As I recall, they put out two issues that sold like crazy. And we did prepare a third as I recall. And then the cease and desist showed up from Ty. And so we just canned it. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. So it's not that the market fizzled out. No, it's that we got a cease and desist. Now, I don't, forgive me, I haven't listened to every interview you've done. I don't, has anyone ever explained to you what the wizard Christmas bonus was? Not at all. Let's hear about this. Oh my God. Really? Okay. Prepare yourself for the shot. When people, when people slag on wizard after the fact, I don't think, there's just an acknowledgement of just how much I'm not saying they were perfect. Of course they made mistakes, but how much good they actually did the wizard Christmas bonus. Every year I was there was a month's salary. Wow. A month's salary. And that was an extraordinary gift, especially on New York cost of living. When we're all, most of us are living hand to mouth. It was an extraordinary gift. And they always said, we want to keep doing this. It's going to depend on the company's fortunes. We can't guarantee we can always do this, but we would like to keep doing it. And every year I was there, the Christmas bonus was a, was a month's salary. Like my brother-in-law, the most he's ever gotten is a turkey, <laughs> a literal turkey. And I recall that year, the Bean Power specials, as I, I recall it being management kind of whispering to me that those Bean Power specials basically paid for the Christmas bonuses. That is amazing. <laughs> it's safe to say that none of us really wanted to do it. None of us got into it. Yes. It's a great love of Beanie Babies. And I recall, a, I won't name names, but a quite dignified member of the Wizard staff in the back when we were taking the photos for the price guide, having to brush off these little bears, trying to look dignified, you know, as he's, as he's cleaning off the lints and things like that. But, um, no, they, they paid for the Christmas bonuses, so God bless them. When I got to Wizard, the boom had come and gone, and that was nice. There were certain problems I inherited from previous. I was the first official Price Guy manager. Stephen Seamus, I suppose, technically was the first one. It, in the division of labor, the Price Guy had kind of been his baby. One of the problems I faced became that apparently before I got there, they were convinced that some other publication, and I feel like it was Hero, maybe? Did Hero have a price guide? Yeah. Okay. Maybe it was the Hero price. I can't remember which one. But they became convinced that some other price guide was just, like, cut and pasting the wizard one. And, like, stupidly cut and pasting it. And so somebody had inserted blatant errors into the price guide trying to catch them out like would misidentify like the first appearance of lightning lass and things like that thinking that if they publish the incorrect first appearance of lightning lass like aha we've got the you. comic book equivalent of mercury radiated bills if you're batman <laughs> yes exactly i don't know if it worked or not the problem became when i got there it was obvious there were errors in the guide but nobody had kept a list of what the errors were. And I remember talking to Fred Pierce about it, and he was like, yeah, he's like, the problem is not that they were trying to catch these guys out. The problem is that nobody kept a list, so we know what the mistakes are or not. So I had to spend a couple months just going through there, just in my own recollection, going, oh, that's wrong. Oh, that's not right. That's wrong. So, yeah, good times. All right, Lars, so you've told us about how this whole price guide thing was going. You're, you're picking out all the errors. You're trying to correct it, doing your best there. But, you know, one of the things that happened over time with the price guide was that it got smaller and smaller. Did that begin in your era? 
Well, as I've mentioned to you, there were people at Wizard who were very supportive of the price guide. Very, very supportive. Then there were other people who just, you know, wished we would go the way of all flesh, basically. And then occasionally there were editors who, well, I should say people in charge, who were supportive until the rubber hit the road of them running out of pages. And they would covet the, the real estate the price guide was taking up because there it was about a quarter, if not a third of every issue yeah. of Wizard and Toy Fair. And the Inquest one was smaller, but it was a lot of valuable real estate. And so sometimes they would come in and they would get squeezed for pages and they would ask me, you know, can you donate back a page or whatever. And we try to accommodate them as best as possible. But there was one occasion I vividly recall where um, a uh, person who worked for the company, again, I won't say who, because I just, I don't like embarrassing people. And I actually like this individual. I don't mean to humiliate them. The last time I saw them was really, really nice. But they, they come in and they say, oh, Lars, um, we are really squeezed for space this issue. So we were wondering, how would you feel if for one month only we took five Five pages out of the price guide. Five pages come out. Just for one month only. Just for one month. And then we'll give them back to you. Five pages for one month. What, what do you say to that? And I said, well, that depends. And he said, oh, really? I said, yeah, it depends. How gullible do you think I am? <laughs> First of all, the idea that there's five pages of just pure fluff in there is just nonsense. But also, if you take five pages out... Well, maybe you will give them back to me, but you'll quickly think, well, any time you get squeezed for pages, hey, you can ring five pages out of the price guide because it worked before. And then, you know, maybe down the road, you just decide, well, it's working so well, we'll just take those pages away permanently. So don't, you know, give me the song and dance that if you take them away, it's just some temporary thing. It will lead to it being a semi-permanent or permanent thing. So no, no, I said there's no way. And there was a pregnant pause and you could see the wheels turning in their head and they were trying to decide how to play their next cards. And they did say, what if we decide to overrule you and go ahead <laughs> and take the five pages out anyway? And I said, well, you can try, but you're going to have to inform me that you're doing that for page count reasons. And the moment you do that, I will be in Garib's office like a shot to get those pages back. And he will agree with me and he will not agree with you. And that was the end of it. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, I, again, I, I like this individual. I really do. I, I don't say any of this with any resentment because these are the discussions you have. I will say if, if it seems like I was being a hard nose, number one, Garib had tasked me with protecting the price guide and gouging five pages out of it, it just is just at a whim is just sheer lunacy. But the other thing is, I will say this. The last year I was there in particular, we were really getting crunched for space. Overstreet published yearly, but they had a lot more room. I mean, a lot. And even though we were taking up a quarter or a third of the magazine with new stuff coming out every month relentlessly, year in, year out, we were getting crammed for space. And one of my least favorite bits of the job was that Bob Marshall and I would have to sit around and have some serious discussions about if we needed to cut, what do we cut? Who do we cut? Which doesn't sound like a big deal, but you have to realize at the time, Wizards readership was so high that if you got cut from the price guide, it was like you'd been you know, delisted from the New York Stock Exchange. Some of your legitimacy went away. Um, and so Bob and I would sit around and have these tragic discussions about things like, well, 
how important is poison elves and things like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're only given the space you're given. So we did the best we could, but I hated that part of it. Sometimes we would cut out titles and I would occasionally get impassioned entreaties from those creators. Either they write me directly or they call me or they call another person at Wizard to kind of advocate for them and they would come in and, you know, they said it would really help us out if we would put us back in the prize guide. And frequently I would. Frequently I would. And occasionally you just have to go, no, that title is, nobody cares about the devil. I do recall, rightly or wrongly, drawing the line at Captain Dingleberry. <laughs> I, do you, have you even heard of this comic? No. I would get a lot of comics in the mail, people hoping to be added to the price guide. Because, you know, if you could get added to the price guide, that'd be a lot of eyeballs looking at you. And I remember getting copies in the mail of Captain Dingleberry. And I was just like, oh, there's no way. No. <laughs> the line must be drawn here this far and no further. Another part of the price guide was at the beginning, you know, we had all the listings for the creators and how they would be, you know, featured next to the issues they had worked on. And one of the things that came up recently was that somebody wrote into Magic Words saying, I found Darth Vader's name in that <laughs> listing. And I was, did you ever participate in that type of silliness? Were you ever able to throw a few jokes into the price guide? I don't recall doing that. One of the most bizarre things in a way that happened was that there was this little tiny nugget at the beginning of the price guide, just kind of you know, saying what it was that no one paid any attention to. And it was Pat McCallum who said to me, you know, Lars, it would be really funny if from now on you put in some crazy joke or nugget or factoid at that very beginning spot that has nothing to do with comics whatsoever. I was like, okay, why not? And so I, 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 I'd have to go back to my old issues to see what I put down, but I probably was going on about the sex life of penguins or something like that. Um, <laughs> because, you know, and yeah, Pat thought it would be funny to just do something really divorced from the whole magazine, and I thought, well, why not? But no, I never listed Darth Vader's name or anything like that. Okay, let me, let me read this to you real quick, because I just found this in issue 74. Uh-oh. It says, Don't forget, to conform with the rest of the comic book industry, we've painstakingly painstakingly we tell you gone and flipped around the writer artist abbreviations this means that the initials of a comic book writer will appear first and the artist second thus the super talented team on batman the long halloween is listed as jlb tsa meaning that jeff loeb is the writer and tim sale is the artist got it good barney must die <laughs> that is definitely me <laughs> <laughs> that 100% sounds like me. Oh, yeah. okay. No, no, sorry. This is flooding back to me. Yeah, I think when I got there, they had put the artist's abbreviation first, which, you know, every comic book you read lists the writer first. It just it just didn't seem very intuitive. So actually, I think, okay, that decision was mine. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. There, there is a common accusation uh, when it comes to the price guide, when it comes to the promotion of comics in Wizard Magazine, that Garib personally, you know, the Seamus family, they were mandating that certain comics be listed as more valuable on the pages of Wizard in order to sell more copies at the family comic book store, which he did not own, but his parents owned. Can you set the record straight or blow the whistle on the big cheese? I mean, did this ever happen? Did you ever throw some uh, cross-gen comics your way or whatever it was and say, hey. <laughs> Yes, those valuable cross-gen comics. I, too, have heard this rumor, like, half a dozen times over the years just from various individuals and i can only speak to when i was there 
okay? I can't speak to what went on before I was there. But I can tell you that when I was there, the idea that Garib would tell us inflate these prices and would in any possible way be motivated to flog copies at his parents' store or whatever was absolutely laughable. First of all, Garib didn't really get into the business of what the prices even were. We talk about the direction of the price guide. We talk about the format of the price guide. We talk about, you know, as I started to go, the online transition, all that good stuff. Never advised on prices. And like I say, we took the business of, of the prices quite seriously. First of all, it never happened. Certainly not when I was there. If it had happened, I feel very confident that I would have complained very loudly. And I also feel that had Garib tried that sort of blatant manipulation, I would have had a conversation with Joe Yanarello, who was the managing editor and my boss. We would have had a conversation with Pat and Brian, probably Jim McLaughlin, too. And then as a united front, we would have gone to Garib and explained the error of his ways and dissuaded him from it. Which, to be clear, never occurred. But no, Garib was not manipulating. But also, here's the thing. Garib is running a multi-million dollar company. Yes. What do we honestly think is the value of flogging increased comics at one store in Nyack, New York? I, I, I mean, how could this even conceivably be worth his time? This would be like saying that Garib Seamus, running a multi-million dollar company, you know, every week searches the floorboards of his cars for loose change. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just nuts. So, no, it, it never would have happened when I was... Here's my private theory, which I've heard this many times. Many, my private theory and where it came from is that the gossip mongers and rumor mongers, this is just, given the scenario of a guy and his parents in a comic book store and yada, 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 this is just lazy gossip. This is just them going, well, you know that Garib does this, right? You know it. You know it. It's like, no, no, I don't. It's like, do you have any evidence to back this up? No, but I, I know it. Like, well, okay. It's just, yeah, it's lazy gossip. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this as well, because, you know, obviously there was the price guide and then what preceded the price guide in the magazine always was the market watch section. Yeah. So how involved were you? I mean, obviously I would say you were feeding data to market watch, but Mark Wolkowski was heading that up, right? Mark headed up for a while, and then it was given to Jim. I was doing it, and I was writing it, but, you know, Jim and I would conference every month, talk about what was going up or what was going down. Jim had an interest in secondhand stuff, and he was, he was actually quite knowledgeable about it. So I really, really enjoyed working with him. And sometimes we would, like, discover things that, like, we would have to sit down and explain to the other wizard editors, you know, this is going on. I remember doing a market watch column where it was the point where the Marvel masterworks being out of print started going up in price. Oh. And, and again, I cannot stress enough. It's not that they didn't believe us. It just took a while to acclimate to this. Talking to the wizard editors about, you know, this is happening because at the time, the thought that a collection of anything would go up in value seemed a bit weird. Single issues. Sure. But, a reprint and i just had to say you know because i'm like well but if you're really into these fine collectible books or or frankly it's just cheaper than buying all the silver age issues themselves then you might pay more for a marvel masterworks if it's out of print so that required some discussion later in my tenure cgc came about 
And so I hope your readers know what CGC is. I, oh, I'm sure they do. I, 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 presume, I, I, I presume everyone listening to this does. And I was I was actually given a tour of the CGC vault. Ooh. Yeah, because they were in New Jersey first. And then not long after that, they decided that Florida had better weather. So they moved to Florida. But at the time, yeah, no, toured the vault. It was a very well-greased operation. And I remember having to go back and... Again, talk to the wizard editors about this. And, and there was this dawning realization that a 9.0 slab copy of Giant Size X-Men number one and a 9.4 slab copy and an unslabbed copy of X-Men, Giant Size X-Men number one were different products. You couldn't consider them to be really the same comic. They were different commodities. And entirely. I cannot stress enough. The editors were not stupid about this. It just, it, it's a weird concept to cozy up to. Right, so what you're saying is that the prices reflected in the price guide were essentially for loose issues, not a slabbed book ever. That's correct. I think toward when I left, we were starting to report on some, I think we were starting to report on some CGC prices, but it was only like the slab stuff. And so, yeah, this this weirdness has played out recently when like a uh, first appearance of Ghost Rider, I think sold for upwards a quarter million dollars ish. I think slightly less than a quarter million dollars. And there's a temptation to go. Well, good God, why would you pay a quarter million dollars for the first appearance of Ghost Rider? And the answer is they didn't. They paid a quarter million dollars almost for a 9.8 slabbed copy of which only four are known to exist. So there's like uber rarity at work there. So, yeah, no, the Market Watch was a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed working with Jim and we would, you know, just study weird market trends that were happening and, you know, go to explain to the other editors and they were very agreeable about it. And yeah, good times. Yeah, well, let's let's talk a little bit about your co-workers and the, the hijinks and adventures that were happening in and about the Congers New York office there, because you were certainly there long enough and in a period where there had to be plenty of stuff going on so what are some of your favorite memories of office hijinks yeah the one that doesn't get talked about is that my assistant bob marshall who was a hell of a guy and i can't say enough good things about bob was a great action figure connoisseur and in the office he had a lot of marble he had a lot of dc and he had this unbelievable ton of stormtroopers from star wars it was a staggering amount of stormtroopers. One day I was like, Bob, um, what's up with all the stormtroopers? And he said, oh, well, he said an Imperial Phalanx is 12 by 12. It's 144. <laughs> and so he said, I have an Imperial Phalanx of stormtroopers. And I was like, oh, well, you know, why not? Why not have an Imperial Phalanx of stormtroopers? So Bob had but shelves and shelves of shelves in the office of these action figures and somebody over the weekend and i never found out who came in meticulously picked up every action figure one at a time turned them 180 degrees and set them back down again <laughs> and so we come in on monday morning and it's just this absolute tidal wave of little plastic butts <laughs> looking at us and it, 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 it was strangely unnerving you know, that it occurred. And, and it's not like Bob was spitting mad about it or anything, but Bob was, you know, kind of, he was a bit rattled, as I understand, as I completely understand. And I had to say to him, well, look, okay, I, I, I understand why this is frustrating. Um, we are on deadline. 
So I can only recommend let's get some work done and then I will help you, you know, turn them around uh, in due course. So every day for like weeks after that, Bob would come in. He would turn around maybe six or ten of them so they faced the right way. And then he would start in on his work. And it was like this progression wave of the action figures finally turning around. Never found out who did it. I mean, it could be, could have been Pat, could have been Matthew Senreich, could have been maybe Blackwell. Um, I don't know. I never found out who did that. But yeah, no, someone taking them hours and hours and hours. Did anyone tell you about the way they would punk the interns with the phone system no pe- people have like tiptoed around the interns but we've never gotten into the weeds on what was done to haze them so the please only, yeah the, well the only one that i really recall and as hazing goes it's fairly minor is that tragically the phone system in the building if you picked up your phone you would go one to one I, i'm making up the number but you would go one to one pound sign and the intercom would go moop moop and suddenly you are speaking to the entire building this is a terrible liability to have about the place. <laughs> and so like, people would go, moop, moop, so-and-so call Pat. Moop, moop, so-and-so call Brian or whatever. So with the interns, you'd hear the intercom go, moop, moop, so-and-so call one, two, one, pound sign. And then you would hear the intercom go again, and it would be the intern. And you'd hear, moop, moop, hello, hello, <laughs> hello. And the whole building could just hear them being confused. One of them, they nailed him three times. And on the third attempt, you could hear, moop, moop, hello, hello, I can hear you breathing. <laughs> uh, so, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not condoning this behavior. It, again, it was fairly minor, as, as one go. The weirder one, I guess no one's told you about Mark Wolkowski and the, uh, the FBI. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> no, Okay. I knew Wilco reasonably well, and God rest his soul. Mark Wilkowski, Wilco, was a, he was a gentle soul. He was just a gentle soul, and he didn't drive. He relied on buses. He relied on, you know, people giving him rides and so on. And there was an incident in the area, because, you know, we're living in a fairly densely populated area. There was an incident that a guy who looked not totally unlike Wilco by the way, a lot of these details, Wilco told me directly, okay? okay? So this is not just secondhand. I mean, this, this, this is what I heard from Wilco expressly. This woman in the area had given a ride to a guy, and apparently he had a gun, and the gun went off, and he shot her, apparently, in the facial cheeks. Whoa. Yeah. And then, apparently, he felt bad about shooting her in the facial cheeks, so he took her to the emergency room, and then just took off. And, you know, Wilco looked not unlike this guy, and especially the element of him being polite enough to take her to the emergency room, because Wilco was extremely polite. And suddenly, I gather, the FBI shows up at Wizard to talk to Wilco. Oh, no. Except by FBI, apparently it was just, it was right out of the X-Files. It was a man... It was a woman, and they were wearing trench coats. And they go in, and they talk to Wilco. And, like, within, like, three minutes of talking to him, they ascertain, this is not the guy. And they're like, sorry to have bothered you. Have a nice day. And then they left. Now, it's it's always been in the back of my mind to wonder, were they real FBI agents? (laughs) Or were they someone like Pat and Brian asked to show up and pretend to be FBI agents. They may have been real FBI agents. They may actually have been real. What the, the, 
the prank part came in after that. Certain members of Wizard staff, and I do know who one of this was, would call Wilco and pretend to be the FBI to ask him further questions. Because Wilco got saber-rattled and nervous very easily, and so he'd be at his desk kind of in a frothy panic slightly because, <laughs> you know, the FBI has called to further interrogate him, which I thought was simultaneously a little mean and still quite funny all at the same time. What else happened? You know, for me, the, the punks that were, the pranks were pulled on me. Um, Steve Blackwell got a Spider-Man um, web shooter, and one weekend I was going to a convention and he blasted my office with Spider-Man Silly String or whatever it was. Uh-huh. And the problem being, since I was gone, I had to deal with it. It hardens like, you know, concrete if you leave it on for days and days and days. And so I had to spend some time scraping off my office with a putty knife to remove all of it. Scott Beatty and I were quite good friends. And Scott had this habit of like, it just gave him like perverse delight to call my answering service at work and fart into the phone. (laughs) Very mature, very highbrow level this of pranking. Went, this went on for weeks, months. I mean, I took it as a sign of affection that he would... I presumed he didn't fart into the phone for just anybody. <laughs> and I... So I would go to answer my... Get my answering machine messages, and it'd be like, moop, moop, and a great big fart, and I would delete it. Moop, moop, a great big fart, and I would delete it. And then, moop, moop, and it's like, hi, Lars, this is so-and-so. It's like, okay, it's an actual message, and I would write down the actual message, and there you go, and i move on to the next one. Moop, moop, and a great big fart. And, um, you know, that's, that's just what he was like. Now, the big one. How much have you, how much have people talked to you about the wizard convention booth? It has come up a fair amount, but I don't know that we've ever, I we keep trying to pull the good convention stories out of everybody, and people are always a little skittish. They're like, what should I tell? <laughs> Yeah, there, there's two that spring to mind for me. So, yeah, so the wizard booth works this way. You'd have a line, and you'd have a prize wheel. People would come in, and, and you would say to them, what's your category? And their category could be anything. They would say Star Wars or whatever. And you'd give them a question. If you're feeling devious, you would give them a hard question. If, you were, if it was like a child or something, you'd just say, how do you spell Yoda? And if they won, if they got the question right, they would spin the prize wheel. If they got the question wrong, they had to do a physical challenge. (laughs) Jim McLaughlin came up with a lot of physical challenges, which I thought were quite hilarious. I mean, if someone required a physical challenge to win a prize, you know, we would tell them, okay, run around the entire perimeter of the room, flail your arms over your head, and scream, I'm a squid, I'm a squid. And they would do it. And you'd see people running around the whole room, flailing, going, I'm a squid, I'm a squid, I'm a squid. Or, you know, I would even take a break to go for coffee or whatever, and from the next room over, I could still hear people shouting, I'm a squid, I'm a squid. Another one I liked was that if we had people in line who were complete strangers, and, like, if, if there was a, a dude and he got the question wrong, we would ask the lady next to him, or a young woman next to him, we're like, you know, do you mind helping him out? And she said, sure. We said, okay, buddy, you need to drop down on one knee, take her hand, look her in the eye, and propose marriage. And make it convincing. Um, it would always be quite fun. And they would do that and get a prize. <laughs> this, but this event that I'm about to describe next, which is just bizarre. And I, there's one detail in my recollection I may not have right. So put this story with an asterisk on it. But I, ooh, I'm pretty sure I recall this. There was um, on the prize wheel, there was, a, there was you know, the prizes would be like uh, wizard 
comics, wizard action figures, all this stuff. And there was a spot on the prize wheel that said Super Wedgie. And if anyone hit Super Wedgie, my strategy was to take them behind the divide. And I would say, okay, what prize do you want to win? And they would tell me. And I would say, okay, when I point at you, I want you to scream as if I have given you a Super Wedgie. (laughs) Come out from behind the divide, roll your eyes around a bit, and I will give you the prize. Sure, that's the way we handled it. Unfortunately, there was one time it didn't go to plan. Someone hit Super Wedgie, and a wizard staffer who shall not be named went behind the divide with them. And this kid is convinced that he's literally going to get a Super Wedgie. (laughs) And by kid, I mean a guy who's like 20. I was promised a Super Wedgie, and I'm going to get a Super Wedgie. Well, apparently, what I was told was that he sighed like Eeyore, (laughs) turned around, and actually pulled his underwear out of the back of his pants, expecting a Super Wedgie. And the wizard staffer, just very, just on crazed impulse, proceeded to do it and tore the kid's underwear. (laughs) They come out from the divide, and, and the wizard person looks rattled. And I say, what's wrong? And I'm told, I've just given this kid a super wedgie and torn his underwear. And I said, stand back. I'm going to start shoving prizes into a bag as fast as humanly possible. And I shoved in comics and counters and action figures and everything I could lay hands on. It was this enormous plastic bag just bulging. And I, and I, and I, and I, and I give it to the 20-year-old. And I'm like, and to myself, I'm thinking, please don't sue. Please don't sue. Please don't sue. And he walked off content. And we never heard from him again. Oh, if you are the recipient of that super wedgie, we want to hear. (laughs) Did you hang on to your slag? Wow. I just love the idea that he was so ready for it. He'd been through so many super wedgies previously that where he was not being rewarded, he just turns around. Yeah, he must have been through the trenches with regards super wedgies that it just it just seemed completely old hat to him that he would he would do this. So it should probably be said that, and I hope you get Jim McLaughlin on this podcast one of these days, because Jim was in many regards just the heart and soul of the company. I loved working with Jim. Garib owned the candy store. Fred and Ed ran the candy store. And Jim was kind of the, other than Garib, was the public persona of, of the candy store. I mention this because if we're talking about the wizard convention booth, Jim, I felt, really set the tone for that. Jim, of all of us, was the showman. And from Jim, I learned in a way that if you're going to tell a lie, sometimes laying it on so thick can really help you. There was one time at the wizard booth that Jim was just being himself. He was, you know, firing people up, getting people excited. And this guy who was in line... He's watching Jim and he's looking at Jim and he says to Jim, he's like, your voice sounds familiar. He says to Jim, have you ever done any like voice work for animations or cartoons? And Jim, who just enjoyed winding people up, Jim just said, well, no, he tells the guy, I haven't done any animation work. But if my voice sounds familiar, it's probably because, you know, when you log into AOL and there's that voice that says, You've got mail. He says, that's me. That's my voice. (laughs) It's completely BSing. And the guy says, no, you are not. 
And then Jim just starts laying it on really thick. And Jim just goes, well, you know, his thing is, he's like, I'm kind of pissed about it because they did pay me $15,000 for that, which is pretty good until you realize just how ubiquitous that voice is. I mean, it's everywhere and I don't get royalties. So I don't know. I mean, 15 grand is 15 grand, but I felt that I, I think I got pretty screwed, you know, in the final equation. And he just goes on and on and on. And finally, the guy goes, you are lying. And Jim is thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> the gig is up. And then the guy goes, you have done animation work. You're just not telling me about it. And, you know, uh, Jim was like that. He could just he could just spin just complete nonsense and make it sound great. Well, and I, I like the belligerent nature of that person. Like, it's like, you're lying about that. But I know that you <laughs> have know. done voice work. And you're How just... dare you? <laughs> now, we've, we've heard, Lars, a, a lot of tales because Cogners was not in the middle of a big city, that there were tales of wildlife, you know, like hunting off the docks and actual like wildlife getting into the offices and things like that. Did you ever experience Correct. that? In, in a way. I mean, I, and I, I know this is going to sound nuts, but when you are, there's a lot of people who after the fact have leveled this stupid accusation that wizard would hire young people and not pay them anything, pay them very much. I'm like, okay, well, first of all, you've kind of described every company in America. <laughs> Secondly, the problem was not the wizard hired young people and didn't pay them much. The problem was that journalism has never paid very much. And we were in New York with New York cost of living. And, you know, the three years I was there, I was just living hand to mouth. Now, again, people were very generous and wizard was very generous. Like I probably shouldn't be sharing this story, but I do, I do know one occasion where someone needed a car, like they, they, they just their car broke or something. And we passed the hat and tried to give them a down payment in a car and another employee needed a car and wizard gave him a loan. You know, wizard said, well, oh, you, yeah. you, know, you, you, you got to pay this back, but we'll, we'll help you get your car and then you can pay it back and stuff like that. So anyway, th the years I was there, you're living hand to mouth, got no money to spare. And it's probably been explained that like, you know, most people worked at wizard. were like, they either lived with their parents or they were in a house like four to six people deep. So Pat would kind of wildly offer contest prizes for things. Like, he offered $25 gift certificate, I think, to the, anyone who won the, the Twister contest at the Wizard Halloween party. And I'm a, a little ashamed to say of how much I practiced for this party, because I was like, well, 25 bucks, I can get this thing over here with it. And I won. I won. Oh, wow. Yeah, I won. And I, I got the 25 bucks, or 25, the gift certificate. It, yeah, it, it became stupid, because, you know, nobody out there has any money to spare. And I think there was a time that Pat offered, I hope I'm not getting my memory wrong, there was a groundhog on the premises, and he offered like $250 if you could get a photo of the groundhog. But it had to be near, uh, the picture had to include some wizard property. So, you know, you prove it wasn't just any groundhog. And I, I, I'm not proud of this, but I entered some sort of fugue state trying to photograph that groundhog because 250 <laughs> bucks was a lot. And also I thought I am an Iowa farm boy. I understand wildlife because I'd flushed all sorts of groundhogs out of property on, you know, the horse farm and things like that. So I remember there was one, one time when the office was closed, there, there was a, this groundhog burrow hole near the building. And I got a sign with the wizard logo. I went to the warehouse and there was enormous, plastic containers they used for the water coolers and I, I i poured like 30 gallons of water or more even down into that burrow trying to flush out that groundhog 
it made quite the spectacle, and I and I and I never got him. And it was a few days later, and again, Scott was just an imp. I say that in the best possible way. Scott calls me up because I I must I think I must have mentioned it to him or something like that. And Scott calls me up and he goes, Lars, just so you know, Donato just found a drowned dead groundhog on the on the wizard premises. Uh, but you could hear the smirk in his voice. <laughs> and I said, I presume you are joking about this. And Scott, he fakes a. <gasps> I I can't talk anymore, and he hangs up on me. <laughs> oh, so that was that was a lot of fun. So yeah, no good times. And then and then I imagine you got a call just a few minutes later, sir. This is the FBI, and <laughs> <laughs> no, well, no I, I, I I presume the farting just resumed not long after yeah. that because you know we have to get back to normal at some point. I have to ask Lars, you know, another elusive character in the offices in many ways may have been the big cheese himself and so the time has come we must ask you garib Sheamus, cool or fool i heard the interview you did with doug goldstein and i would agree with doug you can't be that successful for that long and be a fool i mean i mean you just can't i'm not validating every decision he ever made but i mean you just can't i've already told you how you know garib gave me permission to like challenge even him if he said something about the price guide that I didn't think was a good idea. And I thought that was a good idea. Look, okay, here's what you need to know about Garib Seamus. Are you are you emotionally prepared to hear the great revelatory secret about Garib Seamus? We are ready. Okay. It's just that you have to understand Garib's mutant superpower for so long was hiring the right people and for the most part leaving them alone and letting them get on with it, okay? He hired so many talented people over the years, including, I, has it been explained to you when Wizard was taking a bath in the mid-90s? We've only heard, like, brief mentions, so if you want to elaborate a little bit. Yeah, this is an example of his superpower. I, and I was not there for this, but this is what the people involved told me, that Wizard had the problem that, much like AOL, it became so popular so fast that it just it just ballooned. And they just went on a mad hiring spree because demand for their products just skyrocketed very suddenly. And Wizard hired a whole bunch of people they just didn't need. AOL did the same thing. And so the company swelled up to like 75 employees, which was like crazy. But here comes Garib's mutant superpower. He hired Fred Pierce and Ed Dupre away from Valiant. And, you know, Fred was the president and Ed was the chief financial officer, basically. And, you know, Fred and Ed look at the books at Wizard and they're like, this company can't not be making money. That's crazy. And so they proceeded to fire the company down to size. They took a 75 employee company and fired, I gather, fired it down to about 35 people. Fred told me at which point parking became much easier. <laughs> but the point, I mean, they, but they saved the company. And when I was hired, they had about 50 people, but their output had tripled. So it made sense. But my point about Garib is this. Garib hired so many talented people. The question then became, when Garib came into work, what was he supposed to do? Because he is in a building that is swarming with people who on any given task can do it better than him. So... Other than being the public face of the company, what's he supposed to do? I don't even see this in a way that reflects poorly on him. I see it in a way that reflects well on him. Because, you you know, a company lives or dies by the good people you hire. And that's why things like Wizard TV, I think as much as anything else, were an effort just to give Garib something to do. 
Yeah, ex- explain this, because this is something that I don't know that I'm familiar with Wizard TV. Well, what I'm loosely calling, I, I don't know that was the official name for it, but Garib was wondering if the Wizard brand of humor could be funneled into like a television project. And what year was this, just from your recollection? Either 98 or 99. I think in many regards, he was kind of forecasting robot chicken to some degree. Mm-hmm. To some degree. I mean, I mean, the model was different, but that's where it was going. Garib wanted to do like a pilot for a live action sort of geeky robot chickeny TV show. And most importantly, Fred and Ed sat down and said, you know, what's this going to cost? And can this in any possible way, will the expense of it be something that will harm the company? And when the answer to that became no, then they were like, you know what, Garib, knock yourself out. Because if it works, great. And if it doesn't, it's not a big deal. And that's where we shot the Family Feud Star Wars pilot. It's like a couple years in for me or something like that. But anyway, look, yeah, very long story short, Garib's wondering, can this be massaged into a television series? So we were all, it wasn't ordered. It was just requested would we volunteer to do this pilot for a geeky comedy show Uh, it was proof of concept really and it was decided to do star wars family feud and it was basically family feud but on one side was the rebels and on the other side was the empire i was asked to do the richard dawson role i was the shouty professional host but i had a really good time with that and we just on a weekend, I don't know, the sets got built, and then on a weekend, we went to whatever warehouse it was, and we did it. And the basic shtick was that, yeah, I was the host. I remember Greg Orlando was the emperor. Oh, wow. Surprised he didn't tell us about that. That's yes, amazing. and I remember Jim McLaughlin was fitted out as Boba Fett. <laughs> So we would ask the questions, and the idea was that the rebels would start to win. At which point, Greg, as the Emperor, screamed, They're winning! Finish this, Vader! And a massacre ensued. <laughs> and it was just a big shoot 'em up everyone suddenly falling over dead and that sort of thing. And I remember one of the jokes was that Boba Fett got into an arm wrestling match, or got, not arm wrestling, got into a wrestling match with maybe Chewbacca or someone like that. He got into a wrestling fight with someone. And the shtick was that Boba Fett's helmet would be pulled off of Jim's head to reveal that Boba Fett underneath his armor was in fact a giant duck. (laughs) Yeah, they had this giant, enormous stuffed duck that they had to stuff into the Boba Fett costume and then Jim to move around. Did you ever then see the final product? No. Well, okay. This this falls into the realm of rumors and tittle-tattle, but it was kind of intimated to me that the project never really went anywhere. And... It was suspected that maybe the lawyers had said, you know, you can't do Star Wars Family Feud. But I mean, surely, though, with that type of humor, I I don't know that that was a deal breaker. Surely, you know, because Robot Chicken does it. Yeah. Surely there was a way to do it. But anyway, I I don't know. It never went anywhere. However, I did consider it a victory that it was because the first year Wizard bought Wizard World Chicago, apparently it was shown like in the lobby of Wizard World. Wow. And because I remember this because I I was reasonably close with Jeff Loeb and uh, Jeff told me that he was wandering through the lobby and saw this and saw me as Richard Dawson. And he said it was so hilarious. He almost fell down laughing, 
which I took to be a great compliment, you know, really. Wow, just a, a true lost piece of wizard history there. And I, and I got to tell you, Lars, you are getting a big virtual high five from my friend Chad over at Horror Movie Barbecue because literally last night he messaged me and he said, if you ever interview Garib, can you ask him why there was never a wizard TV show? How did Robot Chicken do it? But Wizard never did it because that humor was so spot on. I loved it so much. And you just totally answered that for him in a way I don't think he ever could have imagined. So there you go, Chad. I mean, wow, what a story. Yeah, no, I mean, it was great fun. And yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the problem became. Or I don't know if just a bunch of us dressed up in silly clothes in a warehouse was not convincing enough for the networks. But Robot Chicken with, you know, Seth Green's name attached was able to pull. I don't know. I don't know what the problem was, but it, it, didn't, it didn't go anywhere. But obviously, you know, as you've told us over and over again, good place to work, generous place to work, fun place to work, and wonderful voicemails. <laughs> what led to your final appearance in the Wizard Masthead, which we have as issue 106 of July 2000? Where did you go? Why move on? Um, the big thing was I just found it too exhausting to keep living in New York. It's said that generally you're either a New York person or you're an L.A. person, and I am much more an L.A. person. Los Angeles is the number one town that I cannot afford to live in, that I would like to live in. Everything in New York just exhausts you. Buying a sandwich in New York is three times as much hassle-prone. <laughs> As buying a sandwich everywhere else. You are living hand to mouth. It was just tiring. And by the way, I'm not actually trying to dump on New York. To If you go to visit, New York is spectacular. If you go for one week or two weeks or whatever, you are going to have a fabulous, fabulous time. But living there, just it just wears you down. Yeah, a quick example. Like a, a buddy of mine in New York would call me. And he would say at the end of work and he'd say, Lars, why don't we have dinner together? And I was like, yes, yes, yes. My good friend. Let's have dinner together. Well, for me to have dinner with him, I have to take two bus rides, a, a train ride to Grand Central Station, walk 12 blocks, total time in transit, an hour and a half. So it'd be like a three hour trip just to have dinner with someone. Yeah. Everything there is predicated on geography and everything there is very expensive. Here in Des Moines, I live in the biggest city in Iowa. And you can get anywhere in town in 15 minutes. <laughs> Friend calls me up. I can be there. So I, I just, I just, New York just wore me out. It just wore me out. And the dating scene was not going well. And I, it's the, it's the biggest dating pool in America, but somehow just the, uh, just kind of the tempo of it. I was like, I'm never going to get married here. There's just no way. And I become friends with these guys. Who, they'd worked for MTV. And there was a internet startup in L.A. called Thirsty.com. <laughs> and, you know, the guys who worked for that was like, why don't you come and work for us? And I was like, yeah, OK, I'm ready for a change. That'd be great. So I did. Thirsty, though, well, for three months, it was the best job ever. And I was able to be on rollerblades all day. We had this, like, stunning floor wow. in, in this primo real estate in L.A. And I thought. You know, from one end to the other, I was like, well, where are my rollerblades? And when they tell me to stop for insurance reasons, I'll stop. And they never did. They never did. But, yeah, this was the dot-gone era. And so, like, they lost, like, $9 million and went under. But, you know, a lot of companies were losing money. I mean, like, I think Pets.com lost, like, 80 or $100 million. It was quite staggering. Uh, I went to work for Thirsty, and that 
you know, went under. And then I rashly, uh, in a down market, decided to open my own publishing company. And so I was publisher, well, I still am really, publisher and editor-in-chief of Mad Norwegian Press. And we do science fiction guidebooks and um, essay books and occasionally novels and things like that. And along the way, without really intending to, I became um, a Doctor Who historian and analyst. And so, among other things, I, I co-write with Lance Parkin the definitive Doctor Who timeline, A History, it's called, which is now like, God help us, over a million words. Over a million words. And you look at it some days and you're like, isn't that great? And you look at it other days and you go, why? Why? <laughs> why so yeah but i'm here in des moines and you know i've been married to a lovely woman who's a purple-haired chaos pixie for almost 20 years so but yeah i got i got tired, I got, tired, I got tired of working in new york as you look back now we're in the 30th anniversary year of wizard magazine how would you describe the legacy of that you know shameless empire especially you know wizard and as it pertains to the collector's mentality the trend of assigning high values to comic books and action figures and trading cards and everything else these days i mean price guide wise i don't know that it does have much of a legacy just just because you know it's the nature price guides that they become outdated and that's that's the end of it the collectibles market in the last year has just been berserk i'm sure some of your listeners have noticed because of the pandemic and because of a lot of boomers who are retiring and being forced to cash out their retirement accounts the value of of key golden and silver age comics is going through the freaking roof and like original art is going through the freaking roof. And it's just, you know, the last few years, like some stuff prices have doubled or tripled and it's crazy. It's funny that I've gone for years when the market's been more quiet thinking, Oh, you know, if I was still writing market watch right now, this would be a fairly quiet period. And like the last couple of years, I'm like, God, I almost wish I were doing market watch again because so much is going on all, all over the place. Now things have become much more sophisticated in that if you want to know the value of something, you can look on eBay, you can look on Heritage Auctions, I think catalogs all of their auction prices. So you can look in that database, basically. And I'm, I'm on a couple of omnibus groups on Facebook, and prices are a big deal to omnibus people, because when, a, when omnibus goes out of print and you can no longer get it discounted, ooh, I mean, it will like double, triple, or quadruple in value very quickly. So I don't, again, it's just the nature of price guides that they're, they're just a bit outdated. So the collector's mentality has always existed. It's just Wizard was right place, right time to be the center of where people got their information for many years. That's exactly correct. Yeah, we were there at the right time for it to blossom. You know, well, and I think at the time, one of the key things about Wizard's success was the price guide. I mean, people were so rabid for that monthly price guide. That explains a lot of Wizard's popularity again i know there's people who don't like that but i mean that's just that's just the way of things yeah, it's, it's crazy to me when I when I would see Jim McLaughlin just recently in the in the issues we've been reading would report that, yes, the price guide is the most popular, so on and so forth. And I look at that, I'm like, I was never reading it for the price guide. I was always there for the content, for the yeah. comic book history education, for the humor. Like, that was all that I was there for as a kid reading. And so it's so interesting that, yeah, for some people, that, that was it. I could get the monthly prices, find out what everything's worth. But that being the case then, after so many years that you were dealing with, with comic book pricing how many people do you know personally they were able to pay for their kids college education <laughs> by selling their comic book collection that old adage <laughs> zero zero it, it well, okay i mean 
it has been regularly depressing when I was at Wizard and afterward. People who would, you know, come to me with comics and are like, what are these? Especially the overprinted stuff of the 1990s. And I would just have to heartbreakingly tell them, you know, this just isn't worth anything. But then again, you know, a lot of collectibles are like that. There's honest having a friend of mine. She has a master's degree in art. And she knew someone who they've been given this piece of art. It was like a piece of jewelry, I think. And, you know, their mother had told them now, as long as you have this, you will never starve. Right. And she, you know, having the master's degree in art had to tell her friend, it's a broken piece of glass and it's worth about five bucks. So it happens a lot. No, we were there at the time to um, grab a lot of attention, which was, you know, very, very nice. But, you know, now things have moved on. Yeah, it, it is interesting when you think about just the perspective of you either have to be selling it at the right time in the moment, or you have to wait 30 years or 50 years until it will have value and it springs back around. But yeah, in between, it's a hard sell. Yeah, but I mean, but especially with the collectibles market being so crazy right now, I mean, like, there are George Perez original art pages that maybe, like, I seem to recall, like, around, I feel like around seven or eight years ago, some guy was dumping huge amounts of George Perez art. And, and most uh, of them are being bought by Rob Liefeld. Most of them are being bought by Rob Liefeld. <laughs> um, he was dumping like, huge amounts on eBay. And just, I don't know, he just thought it was time to cash out. And at the time, you could buy, like, even a pretty nice George Perez page for, you know, like, 250 300 bucks, 400 And many of those pages now, at a guess, I think I've, I've seen some sell on Heritage for, like, 3000 you know, they've multiplied by a factor of 10. You know, Watchmen pages can go for $30,000. It's... And, and and also, like, you know, key comics, like you know, Giant Size X-Men, number one. Good God. In any condition. It's just it's just nuts. Yeah, among other things, Garib was just at the right place at the right time to buy the original art to all 12 Watchmen covers. What? By Dave Gibbons. I kid you no. not. I kid you not. He did. And so, yeah, I think there were a couple of them, at least two or three of them were hanging up in the office, in his office. That's and amazing. sold them on Heritage, I think, a couple of years back. and But it was cool because, you know, you were in the office and you'd go in to visit Garib. It's like, oh, there's Watchmen. Yeah, that's the kind of thing you just look at and you're like, that can't be real. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give it a rare opportunity, but I guess eventually the time comes to just cash it out and take the money. So what question about Wizard are we not asking? One of the questions I keep hearing come up is... What could Wizard have done to save itself? As you trend into the zeros and, you know, their fortunes start to fall and, you know, people who are really important to the process, like Pat and Brian are getting fired and things like that. What could Wizard have done to save itself? And it'd still be around today. And I think the unfortunate answer to that is absolutely nothing. Could they have played their hand better? Probably. But the advent of the Internet was just going to do them in. There's no way it could not do them in because it was sucking away too many advertising dollars. It just wasn't going to work. I'll give you a piece of evidence to back up what I was saying. Because, you know, I'm sure as you go through the old wizards, like the feature writing in particular is just stunning. Yeah. Some of it. Brian, in his interview, mentioned Chris Lawrence doing that feature piece on, on Jack Cole, who created Plastic Man. And I concur. I vividly remember that piece. That was just a great piece of journalism there were things that wizard did great journalistically unfortunately that once they died i don't think comics journalism has ever really recovered but a telling piece of information for me because the thing is stuff like that has to be paid for 
and the masses just aren't willing to pay for it. When I was working for Toy Fair, they did a, again, a reader survey. What do you enjoy about the magazine? Now, Scott Beatty and Tom Palmer and the rest, and even me when I was there, we had a lot of ambition about it. And I remember some great feature pieces being done. I remember a piece being done on Larry Hama, who, you know, developed G.I. Joe, a real American hero. They interviewed Larry in his office. There was this great photo of Larry posing with his Uzis, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> That's what they wanted to do. That you know, They wanted to do terrific journalism on this thing that they loved so much. And they did it very well. But they did a reader survey as to what do you like most about Toy Fair? And the tragic answer, the thing that they loved the most was high quality photos of action figures they could buy or upcoming action figures they could buy. And, you know, once they start, once that sort of thing is available on the internet, you're toast. And all that, all that tremendous journalism, tremendous, somebody has to pay for it. Newspapers are the same way. There's people, I'm sure there's people like you who do appreciate it. There's people like me who appreciate it. There's not enough of us to pay for it, to keep it going. What a wonderful thing I'm ending on. <laughs> total doom no matter what well speaking of which then i feel like we're gonna end on a slightly more exciting note here as we go throughout time because you mentioned that you are a historian perhaps you're you're a doctor who historian who is taking great pains to get every detail put onto a timeline and so my limited experience with doctor who is that my brother he was an avid D D player in the 80s he was a Doctor Who fan from the 70s, you know, and he was watching it on PBS and he just, he introduced me to the world of Doctor Who, and, but I was very young and so I never really grabbed onto it. You know, I loved Colin Baker. He's my favorite. The oh, fussiness okay. of Colin Baker just cracks me up. But later on in the 90s, there was a 1996 TV movie. Yes. Yes, a Fox TV movie. That was Doctor Who. And I was like, oh, I'm finally going to get in. They're going to relaunch it. And it's going to be in America. And I'll be able to understand it. And so there was a Doctor Who, who for all intents and purposes, was a one and done appearance for many years. And that was a gentleman named Paul McGann. Paul McGann who played the doctor in this and, and for those who don't know eric roberts played the master yeah. 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 <laughs> and, uh, so what is your thought about this tv movie let me quickly say for the doctor who people listening to this and let's bring it around to wizard i was there in the late 90s now probably i'm guessing no one told you about the fleeting sci-fi magazine that that wizard briefly had Oh, we um, have a couple issues in the archives. Okay, yeah, Sci-Fi yeah, Invasion, right? Sci-Fi Invasion, that's right. And it was done out of the specials department. So Doug and uh, his assistant, Matt Saunders, were in charge of it. I, I, I'm sure the intention was, you know, because Toy Fair started out quarterly. I'm sure the intention was taking Sci-Fi Invasion monthly if it had taken off. But the sales just weren't there unfortunately, which is really tragic. They were starting to get some exclusive scoops. They had a X-Files cover that wasn't like anything special, but it was exclusive. It was just theirs. But anyway, at the time, between like the old Doctor Who show and the new Doctor Who show, Doctor Who's reputation is in the utter dumper in what we call the wilderness years. And they're doing sci-fi invasion. And they wanted to do this Fumetti piece, which was just, you know, kind of a live action photo thingamabob. This is in Sci-Fi Invasion. At one point in the Fumetti piece, they were going to reveal the saddest sci-fi fan of all. And by their estimation, 
the saddest sci-fi fan of all at the time was a Doctor Who fan surrounded by stacks and stacks of VHS tapes. <laughs> okay. So they decide to do this. Now, I my office was next to Dan Riley's, you know, in the research department. Dan is told that he needs to run out and buy stupid amounts of, at the time, overpriced Doctor Who VHS tapes, which were like 20 bucks a pop. So we could have quite the mountain of tapes for this, you know, Fumetti thing. And I, my heart sank a bit. But, you know, I liked Dan, and I wanted to protect his butt. He's like, I'm going to have to blow my whole budget on these freaking Doctor Who tapes. I wanted to help him out, and I was like, well, they're going to do it regardless. So I loaned him my collection. And they did a photo piece of, like, again, this guy in a Tom Baker scarf surrounded by stacks and stacks and stacks of Doctor Who videos, which were mine. But Invasion got canceled, and it never saw the light of day. But I mentioned this because, like, this is 1999. These days, with the giant Doctor Who revival, I mean, if you said the saddest fan is a Doctor Who fan, I mean, they'd break down your door. And haul you out the street and tar and feather you. Absolutely. I actually have some of those VHS tapes here. I'm a collector, and so I have the Doctor Who tapes. Yeah, yeah when I find yeah, them, I grab no, them. How times have changed. How times have changed. Yeah, so I was, I felt bad for sci-fi invasion that it went away, because I thought there was a lot of potential there. But I didn't feel bad that, you know, this appalling skewering of a Doctor Who fan was not going to be seen. <laughs> um, to answer your question, the um, 1996 TV movie, in my view, is an interesting failure. It's misguided, and it has a couple of points that you're like, what are you doing? But Paul McGann is a really good Doctor. Yes. If you heard, I don't know if you heard the big Finnish audios, but he is a he is a spectacular Doctor. Yeah, I knew that he got to come back and do some audio adventure versions, yeah. He's persistently wonderful. And frankly, okay, there's a couple of like really embarrassing moments for Eric Roberts in the movie. Yes. But, the, but those, <laughs> those embarrassing moments aside, Eric Roberts is actually a very good master. And he's been playing the master, again, in the big Finnish audios. And you're like, oh, this guy's good. This guy's good. It was something of a failure. It was beautifully directed. Beautifully yeah, I love the look of it. But story-wise, it's just it's just something of a calamity. Yeah, I still have my VHS copy that I recorded off of Fox that night. Oh, right. Yeah, no, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Paul McGann's terrific, and I think Eric Roberts on audio has been just great. All right. Well, Lars, this has been very, very informative. It does feel like it is stretched all throughout time. Well, uh, so... <laughs> But tell us, tell us, where can people find out more about what you're doing these days, whether it's Doctor Who or elsewhere, if they want to get in touch? I'm on Facebook. I'm at madnorwegian.com. Um, you can just the contact information there. I mean, it'll get routed to me. We're still putting out books sporadically. We have three more Doctor Who books coming out next year. I, actually, I'm at the time of my life. I'm at, I am doing stuff, but under a pen name. Well, you start to have that old Christopher Priest problem that, you know, people are like, oh, you're the Doctor Who guy. You can't do something. I was like, well, I actually can. Oh, no, you're the Doctor Who guy. So, you you know, you use a different name and that sidesteps things. But, yeah, no, I'm, I'm on Facebook and MadNorwegian.com, not Twitter, because Twitter's a cesspool of evil. And, yeah, that's where, that's where I am. 
Well, Lars, we want to thank you so much for joining us and sharing these stories. Wow, the breadth of the topics covered here. Just absolutely fantastic. Hope you all enjoyed it. And if you are a wizard staffer that wants to share your story, be sure to reach out to us. You know, Lars actually heard through the grapevine, started listening to these interviews. He said, I got some stories to tell. Well, I know the rest of you do as well. Don't be shy. Join your former co-workers and friends and give us the inside scoop. What are the stories they haven't told us yet that you know all about? We can't wait to hear them. And uh, next time around, we will tell you that for episode 25, we have a former managing editor, Andrew Carden, who will be sharing some literally rocking stories from the wizard offices. He was there during this boom period as well and uh, you are not going to want to miss it so make sure you tune in for episode 25 how do you find out what it's going to be dropping well you make sure that you're following at wizards comics on twitter at wizards underscore comics on instagram hey are you checking out the youtube channel we're still putting up new videos we're still unlocking other videos from the vaults so until next time we're closing the files This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.